All right, good morning. Good morning. It's so encouraging. Somebody told me, I think it was Carl, said this morning, he said he's going to read my article in the bulletin, but he hadn't got around to it yet. It's on procrastination. So if, uh, if you get a chance, do check out the bulletin. I know Sister Kathy works hard on it, and it's it's a fine uh, piece of work. So not, not my article per se, but the rest of it is, is fine. Uh, today we're going to talk about the ascension of Jesus. And when you think about the life of Jesus, there are certainly many aspects to his, his life that were surprising. Uh, I think about his birth. Certainly his birth was surprising to Mary. Uh, she was, of course, a, a virgin and unmarried. Uh, and the, his birth was certainly a surprise to King Herod. Uh, it had many surprising aspects to it. Here is the king of kings who is going to be born uh, in really a stable, laid in a manger to a poor family. Many surprising things to do with Jesus' birth. As a young boy of 12, when they go to visit Jerusalem, they go to the Passover feast, uh, there are surprising things about Jesus there as well. Of course, he gets separated from his family, they travel on without him. They come back and they find him after three days of searching. He's in the temple and he's talking to the chief priests and the scribes and the doctors of the law. And they're amazed by him. They're amazed at his answers, at his questions, at his wisdom for such a small young boy. Sorry, I forgot I had PowerPoint. So. <laughs> But uh, we look at his, his childhood, and I'd say it was, it was also surprising. We get up to his ministry, and there are many surprising aspects to Jesus' ministry. Certainly the way he taught all of the miracles, these were surprising to the people around him. To me, the, the greatest story surrounding that is when the Pharisees are so upset with Jesus, and they send people to arrest him. They send officers in John 7 to arrest Jesus. And they go to do that, and Jesus is teaching, and they forget why they went to, to go and get him. And they return, and the Pharisees are like, why didn't, why didn't you arrest Jesus? And what did they say in verse 46? Nobody ever spoke like this man. Jesus' words, his teaching, were so surprising to them that they forgot to arrest him. Uh, I think that's just amazing. Jesus is surprising in in so many ways. His death was also very surprising in in many ways. The betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter, seems to have even been a surprise to Peter, wasn't it? Peter just had said, I'll never deny you, right? And then he denies him three times that very night. Everything about his death is surprising. The illegal trials, uh, the Roman trials, the Jewish trials, the trial before Herod, the trials before Pilate, the scourging, his death on the cross, all the things that he endured up to that point in his death. And then he's got a forgiving attitude to those who are 
punishing him, who are killing him, and even to the thief on the cross. He's got that forgiving attitude that extends to each of us, and all of that is surprising. His resurrection must have been very surprising as well. Uh, Certainly it's an unusual thing, isn't it, to, to resurrect from the dead. And what I find interesting, and we're going to spend just a, a short amount of time looking at this, is leading up to talking about the ascension, is that the resurrection should not have been a surprise. It certainly was surprising to them, but it shouldn't have been. And we, we look at the reasons it should not have been surprising. We turn to Mark 8 and verse 31, and we start looking at the teaching of Jesus. Now, I missed this. For years and years. I I don't know why I missed it. I must have read it dozens of times. But I missed the fact that Jesus plainly taught that he would rise from the dead. And it should not have been surprising. Look at Mark 8 and verse 31. It says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And in case we missed it, in case we thought maybe he taught that in a parable or in some way that they wouldn't understand, the verse 32 says, and he said this plainly. So he's telling them, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be punished. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be killed. And then after three days, I'm going to rise again. So much so that Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. and says, stop saying this. You're scaring everybody. Stop saying this. And Jesus rebukes Peter and says, Get thee behind me, Satan. And he didn't stop teaching it. Mark 9, verses 30 through 32, he says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So he's teaching them plainly, And they're saying to themselves, how can you be killed? I don't understand. You're able to perform miracles. You're able to do it. You are the Messiah. Why would they kill you? We're afraid to ask. And then Mark 10, 32 through 34, another chapter. And they're on the road. They're going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again. So now he's taking the twelve apostles, and he began to tell them what's going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, Jesus is teaching them this. He's taught his disciples. He's taught them again. Then he's taken the twelve on the way to Jerusalem, and he's taught them again. And then all of that stuff that he said happened. Why then was there nobody at the tomb on the third day? That's always mystified me. It must have been so disappointing to Jesus, who endured all of these things for us and had predicted the resurrection, that nobody was there to greet him. Nobody had the faith in what they had He had taught them to be there when he 
is resurrected. And it's a fitting pattern when we start to look at the ascension and really everything to do with the life of Jesus. It's a fitting pattern. I want to talk about the ascension being foretold. In Leviticus 16, 29 through 34, we see a type of the high priest who once a year enters into the Holy of Holies and makes atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews 9, 7 talks about that relationship. And then in verse 11, it says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come and through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We have it better because Jesus entered into the true holy of holies, the real tabernacle in heaven where God dwells all the time. Jesus also predicted his ascension. In John 6, 62, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Then a chapter later, in John seven thirty three, Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. And then John 14, 2, he said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And John twenty seventeen, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus predicted the ascension. Now I want to take a look at some of the circumstances surrounding the ascension. These are the accounts that are on the screen, and we're going to to read them. They're all fairly short, but we're going to take a look at everything we know about the ascension. The accounts in Mark 16, 19 just says this, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Luke 24, 49 through 53 says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. In Acts 1-3, we learn that it's been 40 days since the resurrection. Acts 1-9-12 says that when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. 
So I want to note some things about the ascension. I want to take a look at what we've just learned from the text and examine it a little bit more. First, it occurred 40 days after the resurrection. Now we know that 50 days after the resurrection is the day of Pentecost. It's the day the church was established in Acts chapter 2. So there's 10 days between the ascension and when the church was established in Acts chapter 2. So the ascension happens on a Thursday. Must have been a Thursday like any other, except that Jesus is resurrected from the dead and is there. And then suddenly he's led them out to the Mount of Olives and he blesses them and then he ascends into heaven and disappears from their sight in a cloud. That'd be pretty surprising, wouldn't it? It occurred on the Mount of Olives, which I find interesting. The Mount of Olives, of course, is where Jesus was praying on the night he was taken in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is very beautiful. It's just outside of Jerusalem. You can overlook all of Jerusalem, and it's got a beautiful view of the Temple Mount. Of course, the Temple is no longer there. Now it is, uh, I'm sorry, thought I had a slide of it, but I don't. It, it now views a mosque that's on the Temple Mount. It's a beautiful spot looking over all of Jerusalem where all the events that have just taken place, his trials, his death, everywhere he was led, all of that, you can see those locations from that area. And that's where he takes them, overlooking Jerusalem as he ascends into heaven. We notice, too, that Jesus instructs and blesses the disciples as he leaves. And in Luke 24, 50, he told them to stay in Jerusalem, right, in order to receive It says the power on high. The Holy Spirit is going to come to them. It'll happen 10 days later. So I want you to stay there. So there's been this act of violence committed against Jesus. His followers naturally are are scared by this. But now Jesus has been resurrected and has been with them for 40 days. Now he's saying, look, I'm leaving, but you stay here in Jerusalem. There's going to be important events coming soon. He doesn't tell them when, but it's only 10 days later that it happens. We also notice that this ascension was visible, right? I think that's an important aspect to it. In other words, Jesus didn't just disappear. He didn't, as he had before, just walk through a wall. Jesus ascends to heaven and he's taken up into a cloud and he disappears from their view as he goes into the cloud. But they witnessed him going up into the cloud. It was a visible ascension. And the cloud received him out of their sight. And then there's this idea, this picture of them all staring up at this surprising event that has just taken place and probably a little bit confused, certainly surprised. They're they're gazing up, their mouths have dropped open, right? And suddenly there's these two men, angels, in white robes and they ask them why do you stand there gazing up right 
It reminds me of the two angels at the tomb in, in Luke 24, 5. This is, what did they ask the woman? Why do you seek the living with the dead? Right? Why are you looking up now into the sky where Jesus has just gone to be with the Father? It says, while they were gazing into heaven, went and behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I think that's important. When we think about the ascension, the reverse of that is going to happen at the second coming. It's going to be visible, and Jesus is going to come from above down to us. And we don't, it's going to be a little bit surprising too, isn't it? To many people. We know also where he went from this text. First, he tells us in his predictions where he's going and what he's going to be doing. But later we see him in Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is being stoned, it says he gazed up into heaven. And behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We know where Jesus went when he ascended. He went to be with God. And he is sitting at the right hand. Here he stands, I think, in honor of Stephen, who is being killed as the first martyr mentioned in the New Testament. But that's where he went. He went to be with God, to sit at his right hand. In 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul points out to where he is going upon his death. He's going to be with Jesus in heaven, right? Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He's going to be with Jesus. So we know how he went. We know where he went. I want to finish up this morning by talking about a few reasons why Jesus went. And that's really the meat of, of this lesson, are the reasons that Jesus ascended to the Father. In John 17.4, we learn the first of these reasons, and that is that it was finished, right? Jesus' work was complete. He had fulfilled the mission that God sent him to fulfill, to do. He had done it. He had done, every, done everything that God had appointed for him to do. John 17, 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. God sent Jesus to earth with a purpose. His purpose was to seek and save the lost. He fulfilled the law. He lived the perfect life under the law. And that he was sacrificed for our sins so that his own blood could be sprinkled on the mercy seat in the true tabernacle in heaven as our high priest for our sins. He completed the earthly part of that mission and he was going to fulfill the rest of it in heaven. A second reason that he ascended to heaven is to receive the glory that he had before. You know, before Jesus came to earth, he lived in heaven with God, and everything was perfect, right? He had to give that up to come down and be as one of us. He had to live that human life. He had to 
endure the same things, the same temptations, the same aches and pains and sickness and death that all of us have to face. And now, John 17, 5, we see that he's going back to receive the glory that he had before. Before Jesus came to earth as a man, he was in heaven with the Father, and he was glorified before all. And now he was going back to be glorified as the one who had completed the mission. John 14, 2, he also went to prepare. He's going to prepare a place for us. In my Father's house are are many rooms or many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go there to prepare a place for you? It's interesting. There's a lot of theories out there that I hear about. People talk about the second coming or an earthly kingdom or a new earth uh, concept. But Jesus went to prepare a place for us now. That's what he's doing. He's preparing a place for us. And it's this analogy to the Jewish wedding concept where the groom would go and build a room off of his father's house and the bride didn't know exactly when he was going to come and, and take her to the wedding feast and they were going to be married. And then he would take her to this room eventually after the wedding feast. And that would be their new home together. That's the same idea that Jesus is, is drawing on here is that he's going to come again and take us to his father's house. He also went so that he could sin. In John 16, 7, he talks about this. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go. For if I don't go, the helper will not come to you But if I go, I will send him to you. He's going to send the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And when he comes, he's going to give them all truth. They're going to understand. They're going to be inspired. And they're going to be able to teach others. And complete the work that God had for them to do. So Jesus went to heaven so he could send the Holy Spirit. He said, it's actually advantageous. It's good for me to go away from you because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. and He's going to bring you into all truth. And you're going to take all that truth and you're going to write it down in the Bible for all future generations. So it's advantageous that he goes because he would send the Spirit who would lead them to all truth. He also went according to 1 John 2, 1, so that he could be our advocate in heaven. It says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And who is that? Jesus Christ, the righteous. I have this concept in my head that I keep, and it helps me, As I think about Judgment Day, and I think about the fact that I will stand there before God. And God has given all authority to Jesus. Jesus is going to judge me. And I won't be able to call any witnesses or have any help from other people. They'll be concerned about themselves. But I'll be concerned about me, right, as I'm standing before God and standing before the judge, Jesus. 
And there's going to be a prosecuting attorney, and that's Satan. And Satan's going to accuse me of things that I'm guilty of, right? He's going to say, ah, that one, that one has sinned. That one doesn't get to go to heaven, right? And God is just, and God is fair. And without Jesus, I'm guilty, and I'm going to go to hell. But if I'm in Christ, not only is Jesus the judge, he's also my defense attorney. He's going to stand with me and say, no, no, you're wrong. That one's covered by my blood. We don't remember any of that that you're talking about, Satan. All that's been washed away, and he's in me. And all spiritual blessings are found in Christ. That's one of the reasons Jesus ascended, so he could be there and advocate for us with the Father, not just on the day of judgment, but now as well. He is our advocate. We don't need any indulgencies like we talked about in Bible class this morning. We don't need any priests on earth forgiving us of our sins. We have an advocate with the Father so that our prayers can reach the Father because we have Jesus. Right? You know what Jesus did for us last night? He was praying for us. He was advocating for us with the Father so that we can be with God. That's the true hell, by the way, is to be separated forever from God and not have any chance at reconciliation. All that has to take place now as we make our choices here on earth. So he went to be our advocate. The next one, which I find interesting, is he went to make captivity captive. He actually enslaved slavery. That's what it means there in this verse. In Ephesians 4, 8, it says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, so he ascended to do this thing, that he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. The allusion here is, is to when Moses led the children of Israel out of captivity. Here Jesus is leading his people out of the captivity of sin and in fact has has captured, has arrested sin and that captivity that sin brings and put it in bondage and in chains and we are free in Christ. You think about the Roman triumphs that they would have. These conquerors would come back with the captives from their conquest and they would be in chains. Jesus is like that. He he conquered. And he is taking captivity itself captive for us. We are now free from sin. It's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then finally, he went away so that he could continue to be near us. Isn't that a, a strange idea? Surprising. But he says, I'm, I'm with you always, even until the ends, the end of the earth. Jesus went away so that he could continue to be with us. He's with us through the scriptures. He's in our hearts. And he is advocating for us. Jesus will never abandon us. Jesus is still with us today. And so he went so he could continue that work. And finally, he went so that he can come again. You can't come back unless you, you leave the first time, right? 
And someday Jesus is going to come back. There are many things about Jesus' life that were predicted and that he even taught plainly, but people were still surprised. They shouldn't have been surprised, but they were. I think of Paul on the road to Damascus when Jesus speaks to him. Is he surprised? He's surprised, but what does he say? Who are you, Lord? He knew who it was that was speaking to him. He wasn't really that surprised, was he? He knew who was speaking to him. And because Jesus had predicted his ascension, the apostles really shouldn't have been surprised. Just like his parents shouldn't have been surprised to find him teaching in the temple and speaking to the doctors of the law. The apostles and his followers shouldn't have been surprised at the resurrection. They should have been there to greet him. There's another day coming. Jesus predicted his ascension, his death, his resurrection, and it happened. And at his ascension, his return is predicted. This Jesus who is taking up from you to heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. And when he comes, he will judge the world. And many people will be surprised. Certainly all of us will be surprised in that we don't know when it's going to happen. But we know that there's a judgment coming. And we have to teach others that this is going to happen. And many people who consider themselves religious will be surprised on the day of judgment when they find that they have not been doing what God told them to do. There will be no atheists in hell because once the judgment day comes, they will believe in God. They were atheists when they were on earth, but they won't be atheists then. They're going to know. What about you this morning? Are you ready for his return? There are many things that can happen to cause us to suddenly be where we can no longer make any changes to our condition, where we're suddenly going to be in a condition that means that that's where we're going to be judged. One of those, of course, is death. I mean, death can come for, it it doesn't discriminate on age, sex, race, it, it just is a thing that all of us have to deal with. Someday, maybe today, death is going to come. It can come in a car wreck on the way home. It can come from a heart attack in the foyer. We don't know when death is going to come for us. But it will. It's a certainty. You can also become incapacitated through any number of ways. Through injury, through mental decline, You can get to a point where you no longer are able to make the changes you need to make. There's a third way, too. I call it being incarcerated because many times uh, prisoners get themselves in, in this kind of a situation, but it doesn't have to be prisoners. You can just be in a situation where you cannot obey the gospel, where you cannot be baptized because you're not in control of your situation. And prisoners, like I said, find themselves in this. They have to get permission 
to have somebody come in with a portable baptistry and baptize them. And sometimes they won't allow them to. So those are three ways that you can no longer be in control of whether you have time to obey the gospel or not. But there's a fourth way too, and that's Jesus returning, which is going to happen in the wink of an eye, right? It's going to happen suddenly. We don't know when, and we're not going to expect it when it happens. But we need to be looking. For those of us who are in Christ, we need to be looking forward to that day. It's the end of our pain, suffering, death on this earth, and it's our reward in heaven. But if you are not a member of the body of Christ, if you are not in Christ, then he will not stand with you on the day of judgment, and you will not have anyone except for Satan. And yes, he's a liar, but he won't have to lie on that day because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this morning, if you are not in Christ, I encourage you so much to make that right. And if you'll come forward here in just a moment when we sing, we'll figure out where you are and how you need to get to where you need to be. We'll study with you. If you are, you've been in the body of Christ but you've fallen away, we will pray with you. We'll take your confession upon your repentance. We will pray with you and for you and get you right. If you've never obeyed the gospel, we would love to study with you and teach you what you need to do to follow God's will and do what Jesus told us to do. If either of those is the case for you this morning, don't go away lost. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.